That's a familiar song that we sing a lot these days in protest movements and marches, wherever people are gathering to cry out for freedom. It's a song that goes as deep roots in American culture and society, but roots that extend across the world. The song is, of course, We Shall Overcome. Many of you have sung it here in this congregation. You've sung it in other places. Sometimes the singing is mournful. Sometimes the singing is lament. Sometimes it is soulful and powerful. Sometimes people just need to sing out the song for whatever the cause of freedom is that they are committed to. I want to give you a little history of this song today of We Shall Overcome. Um, sometimes in UU congregations are like, oh, Pete Seeger created that song. Um, no, Pete Seeger did not create that song. Where that song comes to us from is from the times when this country still had slaves. The slaves would be working in the fields. They didn't have their freedom, but they would start to sing out songs of hope and freedom. And so they would sing, I will overcome. I will overcome. I will overcome someday. Even though my yield may not be great, you can see the imagery in the song they were singing, I will overcome someday. And so when slavery was abolished in this country, that song kept being sung, first in black churches uh, in the United States, and then it started spilling into protest and freedom movements um, across the country. And we heard this song most clearly in the civil rights movement, and the words were changed ever so slightly to, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. And that song became sort of an anthem for the civil rights movement from those slaves who sung it out in hope, in the hope for freedom one day. And so even when it was sung during the civil rights movement, people realized we're still singing this, we're marching. Yes, the Voting Rights Act was passed. All of this good progress has been made and people have kept on singing the song because it is a song of hope, it is a song of aspiration, it is a song of yearning and lament, it is a song that's saying, yes, we did something then, but there are new dreams and hopes today for the oppressed peoples of our world. And so that song spread. It didn't just stay in the United States, it went overseas. People in Bangladesh would sing it out for freedom. People in South Africa would sing out black and white together, black and white together, we will be free one day. Wherever there was oppression and suffering and people yearning for freedom, we shall overcome, would reach those nations and those peoples. And so that's why we still sing it today. Some people love the way Unitarian Universalists sing it. Some people go, oh my goodness, that's not how you sing that song. But behind that song, it's the intent. It's not just a pretty song that we sing every Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. It's not a pretty song we sing whenever there's a feeling of lament and a yearning for freedom. It's a song that we sing in hope, in hope that we will be inspired to answer the calls of justice every single day. So as Unitarian Universalists, we are called to act for justice. We are called to answer that call, no matter what no matter who is crying out, we are called to do the work of justice every day. May the world overcome someday, someday. Good morning. Today's reading is from Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech on being a good neighbor. 
The ultimate measure of someone is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk their position, prestige, and even life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, they will lift some bruised and beaten brother or sister to a higher and more noble life. The Good Samaritan in the Gospels possessed excessive altruism. With his own hands, he bound the wounds of the man on the road and then set him on his own beast. It would have been easier to pay an ambulance to take the unfortunate man to the hospital rather than risk having his neatly trimmed suit stained with blood. True altruism is more than the capacity to pity. It is the capacity to sympathize. Pity may represent little more than the impersonal concern which prompts the mailing of a check. But true sympathy is the personal concern which demands the giving of one's soul. Pity may arise from interest in an abstraction called humanity, but sympathy grows out of a concern for a particular needy human being who lies along the roadside. An expression of pity devoid of genuine sympathy leads to a new form of paternalism which no self-respecting person can accept. Dollars possess the potential for helping wounded children of God on life's Jericho Road, but unless those dollars are distributed by compassionate fingers, they will enrich neither the giver nor the receiver. Money devoid of love is like salt, devoid of savor, good for nothing except to be trodden under the foot of men. True neighborliness requires personal concern. The Samaritan used his hands to bind up the wounds of the robbed man's body, and he also released an overflowing love to bind up the wounds of the broken spirit. More than ever before, my friends, men of all races and nations are today challenged to be neighborly. The call for a worldwide good neighbor policy is more than an ephemeral shibboleth. It is the call to a way of life which will transform our imminent cosmic elegy into a psalm of creative fulfillment. No longer can we afford the luxury of passing by on the other side. Such folly was once called moral failure. Today, it will lead to universal suicide. We cannot long survive spiritually separated in a world that is geographically together. In the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho Road because he is a part of me and I am a part of him. 
His agony diminishes me and his salvation enlarges me. Gather round and I will tell you a familiar story, one that is seared into the connective tissue of our culture, whether you grew up Christian or not. The message is simple and clear, and I find that its ethical directive, the heart of the story, is in short supply in America these days. It is a story with a simple prompt, who is my neighbor? Here we find the great teacher of days past, Jesus of Nazareth, answering this question posed to him by a teacher of the law, a rabbi. And Jesus, being who he was, replied with a simple story of his own, a parable. He told of an unnamed man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, when at once he was beaten by robbers and left for dead, nearly naked on the road. But fear not, here comes a priest traveling down the road. And yet upon seeing the man broken and bleeding and bruised, he crossed to the other side and passed him by. The man was about to despair, but look, now a Levite came down the road. But he too passed by. Now doubting his survival, the man saw a Samaritan coming. He could tell by their clothing. The Samaritans adhered to a slightly different religion than the Jews, and therefore did not get along with one another. But the Samaritans stopped, looked at the beaten man, and was moved by great compassion. The Samaritan bound up the man's wounds, brought him to an inn, and cared for him. Upon leaving the inn, the Samaritan paid the innkeeper to tend to the man for however long he needed. Upon telling the story, Jesus turned to the teacher of the law and finally answered the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus concluded, go and do likewise. No miracles in this story, no impossible claims, no hellfire and brimstone, just a story of human compassion, of bridging difference, of taking a deep risk. When have you passed by someone on the road to Jericho? And when have you been moved by great compassion to stop and tend to their wounds? This morning, we're here to bear witness to the life of another such Samaritan journeying down the road. This being the weekend America pauses to remember the life of Dr. King and all of the courageous people who fought and marched and suffered for dreams of equality and peace. Our story takes us back first to 1925, and it's in the city of California in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, where Viola Liuzzo was born to an out-of-work mine worker and a teacher. Moving several times during her upbringing, Viola lived in Tennessee, in Georgia, other parts of the South, and elsewhere. Her family was so poor, and she was raised during the height of segregation. But even then, her parents still instilled some values of justice in her. Relatives recall that once when her mother was a manager of a general store, Viola stole money out of the register to give to a family, a black family, who couldn't afford their groceries. I imagine the rest of the story didn't go so well for Viola then. Upon moving to Ypsilanti, Michigan, so her father could find work, Viola came of age and found herself in Detroit, wanting to be a literal incarnation of Rosie the Riveter. She married her second husband, 
having been married once before for a single day at age 16. She had two children, but ultimately divorced her second husband. Not long after, she met Anthony Liuzzo, who was a labor organizer with the Teamsters. Together, they had three more children, making her a mother of five. So far, this story is quite common during the Depression and the World War II era. Families moving often, segregation at its height, with a growing dis-ease among some Americans and people seeking opportunities wherever they could. Viola, while finishing her education, suddenly became very politically active. She was arrested twice for protesting in the name of educational reform and justice, and each time, instead of pleading not guilty and ultimately being acquitted, she pled guilty and demanded a trial so she could further publicize her causes. She was a friend to many, no matter their race, which was still scandalous to many in Michigan back then. She discovered the Unitarian Universalist Church of Detroit while studying at Wayne State in 1964 and joined the NAACP. She became heavily involved in both organizations immediately. There was not a committee she would not join in either of these. And upon witnessing the deaths of Jimmy Lee Jackson and the Reverend James Reeb on television, Viola was moved to answer the call of Dr. King to the South. She attended the memorial of James Reeb and was further committed to the cause. She called her husband, complaining, there's just too many people just standing around here not doing anything. She continued that she had to do something. She had to be a part of what was happening. She had to be of service. She told her husband to tell her five children that and hung up the phone. Upon arriving at Brown Chapel in Selma three days later, she immediately volunteered to work in hospitality, then first aid, as protesters continued to be beaten marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. She also provided shuttle runs with her car from city to city, airport to airport. And this continued, marching and serving and shuttling and tending to people between the cities of Montgomery and Selma, a 50-mile span. One evening, while Viola was taking refuge in St. Jude's Catholic Church with other civil rights marchers, she confessed to the priest, Father Timothy Deasy, and she said, Father, I have a feeling of apprehension. Something is going to happen today. Someone is going to be killed. Viola and the priest prayed together and joined the marchers. Viola marched four miles barefoot to the Capitol building in Montgomery. They sang out freedom songs over and over and over. They listened to speeches, sang more freedom songs, and cried out for justice. After the march, a man named Leroy Moton, a 19-year-old black man, arrived in Montgomery with Viola's car. He had borrowed, borrowed it to shuttle people to the airport. The two of them drove off, dropping off people in Selma, Viola then volunteered to return Moton back to Montgomery. Keep in mind that each trip is 50 miles. Off they went down Highway 80 on the road to Montgomery. And almost immediately, a car full of white people drove up behind them and started tapping their bumper, only to pass them by. 
They stopped for gas somewhere on Highway 80, and several people shouted slurs at both Leroy and Viola, an integrated car in the segregated South. As they continued on the two-lane highway, another car drove up and closed, behind, closed the distance behind them and turned on the high beams. Viola slammed on her brakes, forcing the car to pass. Both Leroy and Viola thought the harassment was at an end. But another car drove up beside them, the one that had just passed in front, boxing them in. Two cars as they drove down Highway 80. And so Viola began to sing out freedom songs that she had sung all day. She thought of songs that she had been singing in Brown Chapel, songs that she had been singing in the march to the Capitol in Montgomery, and she sang the first song that came to her mind, one she had just sung that day. Oh, freedom, oh, freedom, oh, freedom over me. And before I be a slave, I will go to my grave. And go to my low freedom road. She sang out this song as the two cars boxed Viola and Leroy in. And the car that boxed them in was filled with four members of the KKK, of a so-called missionary squad. What we would learn after the story is that one of them was an FBI informant. And they had been following Viola and Leroy for over 20 miles since seeing them leave Selma. Viola drove the car as fast as she could, now singing out at the top of her lungs another freedom song she had been singing all day long. We shall overcome, we shall overcome, we shall overcome someday. Deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome someday. We shall live in peace, we shall live in peace, we shall live in peace someday. A shot rang out, and the car rolled into a ditch. Viola Liuzzo was killed instantly by the Ku Klux Klan. The following day, President Johnson called her husband to express his condolences. He said, I don't think she died in vain. Memorials were held nationwide, and Dr. King remarked of Viola's death, saying, if physical death is the price some must pay to save us and our white brothers from eternal death of the spirit, then no sacrifice could be more redemptive. Not long after her death, the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, led a campaign to discredit Viola Liozzo, branding her as a communist, a delinquent mother, and the white lover of many black civil rights workers. All these claims were discredited, but the FBI never cooperated. A plaque with Viola's likeness hangs in the headquarters of the Unitarian Universalist Association in Boston, one of our martyrs, one of our Justice and mercies lost lights. Now this is usually how this story ends. But we would do a disservice to the cause of justice should we once forget, once again forget, that Viola did not drive alone that night. Leroy Moton was there to witness the whole thing 
the horror, the fear, the tragedy and pure hate. The Klan had murdered Viola right in front of him. And once the car had rolled into the ditch off the ro road, Leroy crawled out of the car and ran into the cornfields. He ran and ran and ran and kept running, fearing that the Klan was right behind him. Perhaps they were, and they likely were. He never knew for sure, but he just kept going. Nearly 55 years after that night, Leroy Moton has lived a full life. He remembers Viola Liuzzo every single day. He cannot help get, but get anxious any time he's on a two-lane highway, and he spent his life telling the story of that night. But also, he spent his life working for voting rights in Selma, Atlanta, Chicago, and New England. He wonders what would have happened to Viola if he wasn't in the car, and he still swears he can see her in the driver's seat every single time he's a passenger. But his life is not just guilt and fear. He's also clear about the state of America then and now. He says, they killed Jimmy Lee Jackson, a black man, nothing happened. They killed James Reeb, a white man, nothing happened. They killed Viola, a white woman, and Congress passed the Voting Rights Act. The story of the Civil Rights Movement and its martyrs is a story that reminds us that even then, some martyrs were more influential than others. Graveyards filled with black and brown Americans are only now, ever so slowly, being acknowledged. And the stories of people like Leroy Moulton are becoming more than a historical footnote. But Moulton still acknowledges that Viola had great courage, and he mourns her loss. The priests that prayed with Viola that night of her death recalled, I felt very strongly about this woman and her goodness. She inspired us all. Her energy, enthusiasm, and compassion were contagious and put many of us to shame for what we were not doing. Stories of anyone giving their life for the cause of justice just break my heart. And as a Unitarian Universalist, not just a Unitarian Universalist minister, but someone who grew into this faith, these stories run deep. They are hard to tell, and they are reminders that the arc of justice must be pulled painstakingly, with human life and death, blood and sweat, pain and relentlessness. Justice is not a passive thing. I return, return again to the story of the Good Samaritan, and I cannot help but think of the priest and the Levite passing by the broken and bruised on the road. Those passing by are passive, not lifting a finger for the cause of justice, worried more about their appearances and status. But I also cannot help but think of the injured man. That injured man is not just the oppressed of our world. Sure, there was a robber in this story, and we can go into the symbology of this all day if we want. I think the robber was the oppression of the world, the systems of injustice that are supported every single day. But can you imagine just how broken and bruised your heart has to be in this fragile and beautiful world to bring hate and division to those around you? Now, do not get me wrong, this is not a call to pity those who would oppress others. And if we are from marginalized or oppressed identities, to ignore our wounds, to our pain, and our fears is a disservice. But this is a reminder that Dr. King once said, only love can drive out hate, and we should be extremists for justice. Extremists 
for compassion, that of understanding suffering, whatever form it takes. Because here's what justice means. Justice isn't just marching and shouting and creating signs. Justice is repairing our world. And so we tell these stories every single year. Stories of heartbreak, stories of martyrs, stories of black, brown, white, male, female, gay, straight, trans, disabled, poor, and so on. We hear the dreams of Dr. King every single year, recognizing that black and brown communities across our nation have kept dreaming and have their own dreams in 2020. Dreams that might be similar to Dr. King's or dreams that are entirely new. We, all of us, whoever we are, pause that we may not forget, that we may hear new dreams of justice and answer their call. Unitarian Universalism is not a faith called to passivity. We are a faith called to action. Always, without ceasing, action is our prayer. It is concrete, real, and tangible. Living prayers, living dreams, living hopes. And as a congregation that officially adopted an eighth principle, which calls us to dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and institutions while journeying toward wholeness, that call to action is loud and clear for every single one of us. That call to repair the world again and again and again, and to never give up and to sing out songs of freedom when those who would hate us are in pursuit. There is a long road to Jericho, and there are many broken and beaten, suffering human beings along the way. Perhaps you were one of them. Perhaps you still are. Perhaps you've passed by others before. The universalist side of our heritage reminds us that our work is never done, and that there is always an opportunity to reclaim our integrity, our character, and to live into our call to action. And in this congregation, I've said it countless times, that you are loved, you are enough, and you are not alone. The road to Jericho, the road that is our lives, our common humanity, we are not alone. And so we will march tomorrow, together, with members of this community, with those we don't know, those we will never truly know, and those we disagree with. We will march in memory, but I contend to you that you should march in a state of deep spiritual reflection. How will you answer the call to justice? For what good is memory if it does not inspire us to new hopes and dreams today? May those be the questions you carry tomorrow as you march, as you sing out songs of freedom, and in every day. Blessed be. Amen. <laughs>